0: Be able to talk through what you're trying to accomplish. What are my goals that I'm trying to accomplish with this purchase? All of those things will help a good broker understand what your goals are, which then they can say, okay, well, based on what you have told me in our marketplace, here's what's available.
1: Welcome to Surgeon Syndicate. If you're paying attention, you know that you only make money when you work. It might be great money, but it's dependent on you. The information on this podcast will help you solve that. We interview experts and provide analysis into financial freedom through commercial real estate. Why? To help physicians like you thrive. Let's dive in. Welcome back to Surgeon Syndicate. We're here for the second half of our conversation with Logan Freeman, who is a commercial broker in Kansas City. And we've been talking about some of the advantages of the Midwest and of other asset classes, specifically uh, retail and industrial. Welcome back, Logan.
0: Thanks for having me, Michael. That was a great conversation and excited to just continue it.
1: All right. So we were talking about retail when we finished, and I just had a couple other questions about that. So in these community retail centers, are there any anchor assets or anchor tenants that really thrive and be productive? A lot used to be grocery stores. If you had a grocery store anchor that drove your traffic, mm-hmm. is that still an ideal... Anchor, or are there other anchors that seem to drive traffic better, or is it a mix?
0: Yeah, it's definitely a mix. And so, we have typically focused on unanchored shopping centers, but we love to be shadow anchored by a large grocery or a Walmart. And I'll explain the difference there. So, the grocery anchored shopping centers obviously, if you have a really good grocer in there, that's going to bring a lot of traffic, but those historically have traded at a much lower cap rate for those asset classes because of that. And so you have large institutional operators purchasing those that have a low cost of capital, which makes it really difficult for groups like us to be competitive on the bidding process for grocery anchored shopping centers. So what we've done is typically look for unanchored shopping centers that may have a mix of national, regional, and local credit tenants in there, but there could be a discount store like a Family Dollar or Dollar General or something along those lines that are in the center that definitely helps bring traffic in. But these get inherently a lot of traffic just because they are located next to where people live and so when they're driving home from work or on the way to work they can stop in and grab something pretty quickly and then head back out and so it's not necessarily a destination spot for a lot of these it's a convenience factor and so when you think about the convenience factor of neighborhood retail that's why we really like that space because that's where the new multifamily developments are happening which is going to create more density and more customers for those tenants but also it creates an opportunity for all of the households around there that already live in that area to be at that shopping center. And so Grocery Anchored, definitely a great asset class to be in if you can find a really nice shopping center that has a good grocer, but you have to be careful because those deals that have been leased with those grocers, if they leave, they're in a big, big section of the gross leasable area of that shopping center. So your concentration of one tenant, if they leave at some point or you don't negotiate a new lease with them is very, very risky in that scenario. And so you always have to look at what are their sales per square foot? How are they doing? How's their online presence doing? Those data can be tough to find sometimes because we have walked away from deals with large national credit tenants, knowing that they either had the idea of renegotiating their lease, or they were actively looking for space out in the market. And so having those relationships with the people that represent those businesses to get a feel for what they're doing in the market is also another barrier of entry and is very important for these types of shopping centers. We've focused mostly on unanchored shopping centers. If they do have a national credit tenant in there, that's great. We have a lot of circ physical therapy type of tenants in there, but most of them are not destination spots. It's mostly a convenience factor.
1: Okay. So the big empty space you talked about Have you found any success there where you have the empty big box or that was a grocery store or a Walmart, and now you have this empty space in redeveloping those? Or is that a really tough thing to turn around?
0: It can be both. So, I mean, it can be a great opportunity if your basis is low enough and you have a tenant in tow, meaning you may have a relationship with a let's say a Chuck E. Cheese or a really good fitness gym operator, right? That need that big footprint. That can be really, really nice. But if you're going in, you know that they have a year left on their lease and you basically don't have any data on if they're going to stay or not. In your underwriting, you basically have to apply a vacancy and a rollover factor. And where it gets really tough is, okay, so if you move from grocery store to a different use the space reconfiguration and the HVAC and the plumbing can be really difficult to chop that space up and it can be very costly. So I'll go back to the basis. If you can find a deal that has a grocer in there and they do leave, you just have to be really careful on your basis. That makes sense for you to be able to come in and reconfigure that space or find another user, hopefully in the marketplace for that. And so that's definitely a more of a redevelopment kind of play and we haven't necessarily done any of those, looked at a lot of them, have not taken the risk at this point to do so just because of what leasing is like on the junior box spaces and where you know the cost of capital is for having to have that available capital to go into that shopping center. So it can be an awesome opportunity, but if you don't have a tenant in tow or a plan for it, it can be really tough on a business acquisition because you're basically doing a redevelopment project
1: okay so to skip or switch asset class so we talked a little bit before about flex space and so originally when I saw flex space it looked like big mini storage and it was more like plumbers and they needed an office and a small warehouse so it was more like 5,000 square feet but we were talking before you were talking about 100,000 square foot space so what type of tenants are using flex space
0: yeah Well, i think the best way to put this is everybody's probably seen the office right with uh you know and that's one of my favorite shows but if you remember they have their office upstairs and then they always go downstairs to the warehouse right and that's kind of a flex type of building right that's one um building that would be a flex use of space where you have an office and then you go down into the warehouse so you have a lot of manufacturing companies we have sound companies that do av for big conferences we have uh, wholesalers on the food distribution side, we have a lot of military usage of manufacturing military, remote control cars, robots. I mean, there's a lot of different uses when you think about this. I mean, manufacturing is a huge industry, but you could be manufacturing plumbing parts, you could be manufacturing paper, you could be manufacturing pins, and you still want to have the ability to manage both workforces from one location. So, what you were speaking about is more or less like the, what's called a contractor's garage type of setup. And they do have that as well. That would be more of small bay industrial where you have a storefront and then you have your warehouse on the back side of things. What we're really speaking about is more of a true office component up front. And then we have the larger concentration of warehouse in the back. So you may have five to 10,000 square feet of office, but then you may have 50 to 60,000 square feet of warehouse in the back. And so that's kind of a true flex use that we look for. And and I think the reason being is the manufacturing businesses are looking for that type of space to distribute out of. That being said, the contractor's garage and the smaller spaces can be really interesting, but you go to a hundred thousand square foot building, you may have 25 tenants in there. And so that's another piece to be thinking about is the management side of that. You might have more lease rollovers, you may have lower term on the leases, and you're not working typically with better credit tenants at that point. It might be just the guy who's got the plumbing company or the guy who's got the roofing company or something along those lines. And so I've seen a lot of people be very successful with that, but I'd much rather have a 200,000 square foot building with five tenants in it than 100,000 square foot with 15 to 20 tenants in that building, so.
1: So it's almost like that step up from an apartment complex, a multifamily, where it's a shorter term lease, you've got 200 apartments, So now you go here and you got, okay, so you got a hundred plumbers. I guess they're not all plumbers, but sure. But they're not looking to sign a 10-year lease and and you have more people to manage. So maybe it's less management than an apartment complex, but more than if you could have several larger, higher quality tenants renting a bigger space.
0: Yeah. And I think location is really important with this as well, because those contractors will typically... And smaller tenants will typically go out to the outskirts more than what a larger logistical company that's actually doing distribution out of the building is looking for, right? So they may be around more residential areas and they're okay with that, but you get a company that wants hundred thousand square feet and they want highway access, they're going to want to be right off the main thoroughfares. And so it just kind of goes to what the business plan is and what you're trying to attract and the location of the property. But I've seen both be very successful and have a lot of interest in the contractor garage or small bay industrial type of asset class, you've seen a lot of that being developed. And so I think that the supply of that, I would have not done any thorough analysis of that recently. But I would like to see kind of what that would be like on the supply side, because that stuff's a lot easier to build than real true flex industrial is because of the office component and the build out there. But yeah, very interesting. And I think that as the United States being an entrepreneurial country more and more of those individuals are looking to work for themselves and have those types of spaces so i have not seen a building that has necessarily both that would be kind of interesting to think about right so if you had some tougher space to lease out maybe you could chop up a larger space that had less visibility and or better location for logistical then maybe you could chop that up to be a smaller bay industrial side of your property that's kind of an interesting thought process there
1: Oh, yeah. So if one side of the building has great access for big trucks. Exactly. Um, and then the backside is smaller. Uh, yeah, contractors, smaller trucks can get in there. Yeah. They don't mind driving the van around to the backside where getting exactly. a big truck is. That's an interesting thought. So with the situation with office, and so there's the big question mark. People working from home, but a lot of talk about people coming back to work. Yeah. Some employers are saying we'd love to get people back in the office, but you can't hire them because We got to hire people where we can. How do you see office right now?
0: You know, I think that office is pretty bifurcated market because the supply has not come online. So we don't have this massive supply of office buildings coming online, which is good for the industry. But office usage at the peak of COVID 19 was down to, I think, 10 or 15%. It's climbed back up to 40 or 50%. And so that's good. That doesn't mean the buildings are 40 or 50% occupied. It just means that the usage of the space overall has climbed 30 to 40%. So that's encouraging. I think that you have to think about as a new employee, yes, you have had the luxury of a low unemployment market for quite some time. That shift back to the power of the employers is and could happen here in the near future, meaning they may have more power to say, hey, we want people back into the office. But even if they do, You have to think about, I run a small business, you have to think about the attraction of talent. And so you might be not looking at a five-day in the office deal. You may be looking at two days or three days. And so I think those shifts are still going to impact office. But where office has still done really well is newer buildings in really good locations that are highly amenitized what's really struggled is the class b office buildings in an okay area that people really aren't really excited to go to but then you also have employees and you have collaboration and i don't know how everybody feels about this but i have heard many times that people are pretty tired of trying to collaborate on microsoft teams or zoom or something along those lines and inherently let's throw a thought experiment out there if there are two people up for a promotion One had been in the office with the team and with their manager and had been there for 12 months. And the other person maybe is remote. They're a great contributor. All their KPIs are exactly the same. I would say that the person that has built those interpersonal relationships with the employees and their direct reports probably has a better opportunity to get that promotion than maybe somebody who is working remotely. And so people have to kind of weigh those options about where they want their career to go and the trajectory of their career. And so I think that's one thing that a lot of employees are going to be thinking about, as well as employers. And so we've started to see Tesla and Bloomberg and all these big companies say, hey, we want you back in the office. This takes time. And we won't see this play out, I think, this year or next year. But I do think over the next two to three years, there'll probably be an onus back to the employer that says, hey, we have a hybrid work kind of workforce, and but you do need to be in the office three to four times per week. And maybe it's like, hey, you don't have to be in on Monday or Fridays, but Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, you're in. And so how that plays out with the office market is going to be interesting to see. But I do think there is going to be a decent amount of pain in that space. Everybody talks about converting those office buildings to multifamily. Two main reasons that that is very difficult. One, it takes some sort of public incentive to do that because it is very costly. And then two is the build out for those. There's the layout of those buildings where the plumbing is, where the electrical is, is not set up for multifamily conversion. And so without a large injection of capital, and that will take a lot of time. And so we've seen some of those be successful, but that's not going to be just the cure-all for office. I do think there's going to be a decent amount of transactions that come off their price quite a bit, which allow a new developer to come in and have a new use for that building. That's kind of my take on it. I think that suburban office, at least in Kansas City, in well-located areas has held up nicely. And frankly, I think from a psychology standpoint of the human race, we are social animals that like to be around people. I can't say that's for everyone, right? I mean, you yep. may have a job yep. that you can do on the computer really well, but at the end of the day, being at the same place that you live, that you work and you play at is tough. Just from a psychological standpoint, it's nice to get in a car, move, go somewhere see some people, then go back to the homes. I've also talked to a lot of CEOs of companies that have said, you know, my workforce loves getting out of the home to get to an office. And that's kind of their safe haven now. So I think it ends up being a hybrid component. I think suburban office is going to be good in well-located areas. And I think that we will see some redevelopment opportunities, but price is going to have to come down quite a bit, which means there are going to be some losers in that space for sure.
1: So the redevelopment when you talk about costs, because from what I've heard from builders is you can typically build new multifamily ground up cheaper than you can convert an office building.
0: 100%. So, I mean, really what you have there is the land, right? So you have a good location, which is fine, but without some sort of incentive, some sort of tax abatement, it's gonna be really difficult to make that pencil from a new project standpoint, because why wouldn't I just go put a 300 unit suburban deal in Overland Park versus taking that 50 story high-rise in the central business district can try to redevelop it so i think that is spot on michael
1: when you talked about the highly amenitized office space doing better what are the types of amenities for an investor if somebody's showing them a deal that you're like is this Mm -hmm. a good office or a bad office
0: so it's really at the property right so at the property you think about the fitness that might be at the property the fitness center You think about the accommodations for coffee and for food, uh, for meeting spaces. So you maybe you don't have to actually leave the office building, but maybe when you walk into the office building, there's a quasi Starbucks set up, right? It could be a local place. Like for here, I just saw a new office building built. When they built it, they put a roastery in there, which is a local coffee company that people love. And so instead of putting it right on the pad site, they put it, in the office building so now everybody that works at that office building can have meetings there at the office building at the coffee place and so being able to let your workers your employees move location within the building and have a different setting for different types of activities is extremely important i think for the amenities and then on the other side of that would be the location amenities are there walking trails around the office building how close is food how close are the bars and restaurants that i want to go to how close is it to home? All of those things, I think I kind of rope into being highly amenitized, not necessarily just at the building, but in the direct vicinity, because we're starting to see even pickleball courts being developed at office buildings, right? So it's, it's really unique what people are doing. I also think that a nice use case is the Asperia campus here. This is where Sprint was located in uh, Overland Park or Leewood here in Kansas City huge office park but they have this big grand vision of making it a live work and play space so they're going to have apartments they're going to have office they're going to have all these different components bars and restaurants so you don't necessarily have to leave and you can be still on this massive campus and still feel like you are not in an office building. So that mixed use kind of component, I think is really interesting for certain areas. Obviously you have to have a lot of ground, you have to have a lot of acreage to do that, but I think that's attracting a lot of businesses because if they can keep their employees happy, they can keep them healthy and they can keep them making them feel like they have different locations to go to at the office, that's gonna attract top talent. So that's another piece of it. And meeting space is really important as well. I think people want to have offices. It's, you know, from the COVID 19 thing, if you can shut a door, I do think that that is interesting. We had this huge open floor plan concept and things like that, but having your own space is really nice. I've heard multiple times from my wife and other employees that instead of having these Rover desks, they would love to have their own space at the office building. So just accommodating for what your employees are saying is important. But that's what I'm seeing. I've seen some really nice new build outs that have almost what it feels like a food court necessarily with TVs and everything in the office building. And then they don't have much of the open floor plan concept. They have a few, but then offices kind of surrounding the area as well. So I think that's kind of what is doing really well right now. And honestly, the tenants that are doing good in those businesses are ones that are bringing customers in and being able to showcase those office buildings as well. So that's what I'm seeing on the office side and where I think that office will continue to thrive. Obviously, I'm not in a highly urban area all the time i'm not in new york city or in san francisco so it's probably different there but at least i'm speaking to kansas city in the midwest
1: well that's an interesting because when you talked about it with retail too it seems like we're maybe shifting from a bigger social model where it was a big city with office downtown and then people lived out over Mm -hmm. here and then you had your big mall over there that we're going back to maybe more of a neighborhood micro communities within a city where you're going to have your retail and your office and your residential more together where people can walk around and don't have to jump in the car and drive a half an hour to everywhere. That's
0: exactly right. And it's happening on the senior living space as well. So we also can't be blind to the fact that the silver tsunami is here and it's happening. The United States people are getting older. And they are looking for live, work, and play locations as well. And so I think that we're seeing a lot of that. And there's a book out there. Can't remember who the guys are. I had them on my podcast, but they kind of termed a new or they coined a new term called suburban, which is suburban urban, right? And it's okay. just that. So you can live, work, and play all in the same area. It's very walkable. All the amenities are there and they don't have to leave. That's making its rounds here in Kansas City. I've seen a lot of those developments popping up.
1: That's awesome. So I'll have you put it in your podcast there in the uh, chat so that we sure. can make sure we have that in the show notes if somebody wants to follow that, because it's been a lot of great information here. So your superpower. So tell me about this. Superpower is being able to stay ahead of the game, pivot when needed, and buying on intrinsic value. We've kind of gotten into that. I really like that.
0: So my thought process here is for the last eight years where I've been doing real estate, not one year has looked the same. And the reason being is when you are in the market on the brokerage side and the acquisition side, you get to look at it from two different perspectives. And so I'm seeing what is trading from a brokerage standpoint. And I'm also able to understand, okay, what can we go acquire for? And what can we dispose of at the same time? And so that's creating what I'll call anecdotal evidence on our investment thesis and our ability to pivot when necessary. For example. We stopped purchasing multifamily 15, 16 months ago because the prices really just were kind of getting out of whack and transactions were still happening. I mean, we were brokering a lot of transactions. We were seeing a lot of people still do transactions. And when we couldn't start getting fixed rate debt for what we needed it to make sense on, we stopped and we repivoted back into the commercial side because we thought that less people were playing in that space, but the demand for that space was extremely high. So you have a imbalance on the capital markets versus the physical demand side, that made sense for us to step back into that. I wouldn't have been able to know that unless I was active in the marketplace, doing transactions and seeing what was going on. And so that to me is a superpower because I can bring that knowledge to my investor base and say, Hey, I'm a guy who lives here, works here, plays here, does everything here in the Midwest, Kansas City specifically. And here's what I'm seeing on a day-to-day basis. This is how it's impacting our thesis on the investment side of the business. So I think that when you only have one toolbox in your tool belt, that'd be a hammer, everything can look like a nail. And we have been able to pull out a screwdriver, we've been able to pull out a sledgehammer if we needed to, and move and pivot before the Wall Street Journal was posting about these things, right? And so that's important, because if we're making those moves early on, then we're probably garnering market share, but also probably better deals before the market does. And so that's my superpower is just being super active in the real estate markets that I'm playing in and and making sure that I'm bringing that knowledge to our investor base and communicating it in a way that they can understand.
1: So talking about the broker, because I had this great conversation with a medical colleague the other day and somebody who's looking to get started in some smaller commercial properties, you know, small strip center or something like that. And the discussion about brokers, it was interesting because for most people, I call on a residential real estate agent. I've bought quite a few houses, bought and sold with an agent, without an agent. And so I'm used to having that conversation and know what I'm looking for and what to talk for. And we had the discussion that it can be intimidating because I think as a doctor, you're always supposed to be an expert and now you're making this call to somebody and you don't even know what to talk to them about any advice to somebody who's new so one option is investing with somebody who's doing it and just being a passive investor but if somebody wants to own their own commercial properties how to approach brokers and what's a good way to go about that
0: well if you don't know what you're looking for necessarily on the asset type or class of property you can always be prepared to talk through the ideal investment and i always have this acronym being Real estate can provide you income, depreciation, equity buildup, appreciation, and leverage. And so think about those five different components of the ideal investment and be able to talk through what you're trying to accomplish. What are my goals that I'm trying to accomplish with this purchase? Am I trying to offset some tax? Am I looking for cash flow? Am I looking for a space for my practice? Am I looking for just a passive investment? All of those things will help a good broker understand what your goals are, which then they can say, okay, well based on what you have told me in our marketplace, here's what's available. And then you can start to just get some deal flow sent to you. And then hopefully you've gone through some sort of training on understanding or financial analysis of a real estate deal. They'll send you theirs. Okay. So they'll (laughs) get you started, right? But you really need to be able to dive into that and understand how to think about weighted average lease term, the probability of tenants turning over, what's the break even, what's my debt service coverage ratio, all of those different components. And if you're not planning to manage it yourself, a really good place to start is finding a a solid property management company and having really good conversations with them to say, okay, here's kind of my goals. Here's what I'm looking for. Can you help me underwrite this project and make sure that I'm thinking about this the right way? and a good property management company with a leasing team will be able to really help you with that. And if you bring that whole package to a broker, let's say you got a sample deal, you got a property manager that is going to take care of the property for you, you've got your own underwriting, you can start to send that to brokers and say, okay, here's what something ideally would look like for me, and this would hit my goals. Do you have anything similar? Do you know anything that might fit this criteria? And so that will start to bring I think more goodwill from a broker standpoint instead of just sending you what's on the market or things like that being prepared with that ideal investment a property management company obviously you know if you have a lender that you're working with they can help support that as well and say okay send me the three to five deals that you have that fit those criteria give me a week or so i'll come back to you with where my head's at on these things that will start to form that picture for that broker and say okay i think i might be able to work with this individual or not And I'll tell you, there's a rule of thumb. You're probably going to have to work with three to five to find one that's going to really spend the time with you to actually go through that process. And so every residential real estate agent, every good one is willing to take the call and talk to you about what you're looking for and probably spend a lot of time. The commercial brokers, unfortunately, for some reason, there's really good ones that will do that, but there's a lot of them that just say, hey, I'm just trying to get deals done. I've got my list and see you later, you know, so you might just have to just go through three to five to find that right one that's going to be willing to spend the time with you.
1: Okay. And so when you say a property management company, and it seems like in Green Bay, since smaller markets, that rather than the bigger markets, I think we have brokers who are leasing brokers and brokers who are sale brokers. My impression in Green Bay from the brokers I've talked to is most of them are doing both, Mm. just because it's not a big market. That's right. So And so maybe you get to have that same conversation all at once. Totally.
0: Yes. And or if they do have somebody else in their office, I can say, hey, John over here actually does leasing. I do mostly sales, but you could talk to John about what he's seen in the market for the leasing side of things. That would help too. And a lot of times if they are a one-stop shop, they'll have sales, leasing, and management all in the same vicinity. And so if that's the case, then you can start to work through that company and start to get those relationships built and really put your pro forma together
1: so you can almost say here's how much money I have to invest here's the return I would like can we put this together to find a property that you can manage that will do this the full round trip there
0: that's exactly right yep
1: all right and uh so got one last great thing I love this That how do you add value to the world about you doing the dirty work tell me more about that because this is what a commercial broker when you're out there every day seeing what's going on versus if somebody pulls up a website and looks for something to buy the difference between what you're evaluating and what we may just see online
0: that's right so i mean doing the dirty work is having systems and processes to efficiently and effectively get through volume of deals that other people cannot that's one component the other component is what you see online and the story that i know is going to be two different things Right, So if you see something online that looks great on paper and you're like, man, this really looks like an opportunity, you can call a really good commercial real estate broker or a sponsor that you might be thinking about investing with and say, hey, thinking about being passive, but I'm also thinking about being active. And I've found this opportunity over here. The right person is going to be able to say, well, I actually sold that two years ago in this area. And this is why you would like to be in that area or not. Or here's the challenges that it has had. And here are five or six different properties that are comparable that have sold over the last 12 months that are going to be able to give you some sort of basis that you might understand, hey, I'm either paying the right amount for this or overpaying for this. And so I think just the knowledge of that is extremely important, probably even more important than just being able to effectively underwrite the deal is what's the story behind the project, the seller, the area, and that's extremely valuable as a commercial real estate broker and a sponsor to be able to say, well, I actually sourced this off market through this relationship. And the reason they didn't take it to market is X, Y, and Z and why they brought it to us and all of those things. Hopefully there's a good story around those. If somebody just says, well, you know, let me get back to you and I'll call around and try to figure out. Maybe they can, because I don't know everything, but usually I'll able to make a call or two and figure out what's actually going on. And taking that into consideration will help the transaction to be much more successful than just getting a deal done. So I think the actual market knowledge of the area of what's going on with the property, and maybe even somebody was involved in a buy or sale over the last eight to 10 years, that can bring a lot of knowledge and valuable information to the conversation as well.
1: That's awesome. All right. So we're about ready to wrap up here. The last question I have for you. So reaching out to our doctor and healthcare providers why should they be considering commercial real estate as an asset class for investing versus all the other things out there?
0: Yeah. I mean, I think that just generally speaking, real estate is the third largest asset class, commercial real estate, outside of bonds and stocks. And so people think of it as an alternative, but it's been around for a long, long time. Land is the only thing that they're not making more of, right? And so it inherently has intrinsic value. And that's something that we kind of touched on earlier, but meaning that it has a value regardless of what somebody else is willing to pay for it. Meaning if you have a building and you have residents or tenants in that building, they're actually paying you something on a regular basis. And so you think about that versus maybe a non-dividend stock, and you're just hoping that that business does well, And they grow and the share price goes up or they catch fire on a meme stock and it gets bought up really really quickly right so you potentially have more control over a real estate investment whether you're passive or active hopefully you you invest with the right sponsorship group but actively definitely on the day-to-day decisions because i can't call Apple up and say, hey, I don't really like what you're doing with that new iPhone that I bought. Here's what you should do. They're not going to listen to me. But if you invest in a syndication project, you can typically call the sponsors and ask questions about that and give feedback. And if you actively own something, then that's directly in your control. You get to manage your manager or if you're managing it yourself, you get to manage the residents or the tenants. And so it gives you a little bit more control on that side of things. Diversification is also, I think, the other piece of this. I mean, we as investors on the real estate side look at Ray Dalio's holy grail of investing and trying to look for uncorrelated income streams. And so whether or not that's multifamily versus retail versus industrial, which is kind of what we've talked about today, or a venture capital investment or a stock investment or any of those things, we spend a lot of time on portfolio allocation. And David Swinson did this for Yale and Harvard for forever and, and kind of really coined the portfolio allocation model that we kind of adhere to. So when we start to talk with our investors, we have an action plan that we put together for free on the website that you can go through and just evaluate your current portfolio. And then it kind of showcases, you take a little bit of a test and it kind of showcases maybe where you're lacking some diversification in there. So we try to bring some of that Ray Dalio into commercial real estate investment mixed with David Swinson's endowment fund model, which really has done really well over the years. And so I think that's the other piece of it is just knowing that If you buy into a REIT, it's not really real estate. You're still buying a stock that's backed by real estate and it goes up and down regardless of what the cash flows are, not necessarily based on what the intrinsic value is. So those are the things that I always talk about with investors. And typically folks are like, well, I get that. Or folks are like, man, I don't really want to mess with that. So it just kind of comes down to what they're looking to accomplish. But I do think that it's a good asset class to have in a diversified portfolio.
1: Logan, thank you so much. This has been a great show. I appreciate having you on and look forward to talking to you more in the future. Thank you for having me. This has been an episode of Surgeon Syndicate. If you found value in this episode, no other surgeons are hungry to become job optional. You can help them by sharing this content today. I also want to serve you better. So I want to offer you two things. Number one, I'll be able to give you the content in an even better way if you can take a moment and leave an honest review of the show explaining what you like and what you don't. Number two, if you are a surgeon and serious about this, you don't want to do this on your own because you don't want to make mistakes with your money. I'd be happy to help. Schedule a call. We can make a plan. Looking forward to having you with me on the next episode.